The scripture reading today is from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. The religious leaders sent to Jesus some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in what he said. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. And they brought one. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Jesus said to them, Give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear God's word again, this time from the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, and reading verses 6 through 11 and then at verse 16. Daniel 6 at verse 6. So the rulers of Persia came to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors, the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an interdict that whoever prays to anyone, divine or human, for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into a den of lions. Now, O king, Establish the interdict and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and interdict. Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room, open towards Jerusalem. And he continued to get down on his knees three times a day to pray, to pray to his God and to praise him just as he had done previously. The conspirators came and found Daniel praying and seeking mercy before his God. Then at verse 16, Then the king gave the command, and Daniel was brought and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you faithfully serve, deliver you. A stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, with the signet of his Lord, so that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And the king went to his palace, spent the night fasting, no food was brought to him, and sleep fled from him. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow before God in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, there are so many voices that we listen to every day and every week. At times, we don't know who we ought to listen to. We know we ought to listen to you. We pray that you would help us to hear your word clearly as we read the scriptures, and even through the words that now are spoken, fallible as they may be. Speak to us as if there was no one else here but us alone, a word from you that will touch us, meet us where we are, and be a channel of your grace to lead us to where you want us to be. Hear this, our prayer, 
we pray through Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. Amen. So with the celebration of our nation's birthday tomorrow, and with so much controversy raging, whether it's guns or abortion, the role of government or the judiciary, this morning I want us to think about biblical faith and politics in both the teaching of Jesus in particular, but also in the Bible as a whole, a kind of a quick survey. For some of you, this is going to be disappointing because I'm not going to address the hot issues of the day directly. Some of you may be relieved at that, others disappointed. A couple of weeks ago, if you want to go back, you can find this. I spoke about what the Scriptures say, not what we should legislate necessarily, but what the Scriptures say for those who are Christians with regard to the use of force. And in a few weeks' time, in the middle of August, I'll be addressing the issue of abortion in one of our Sunday morning plenaries. Today, though, what I want to do is to lay a foundation for any of those conversations, and perhaps for all of those conversations, a foundation about how I see the Bible speaking about the relationship between God's people, church, and our role in our nation, state, between church and state. Biblical principles that undergird so many of today's political issues. And I want to do this by taking as my starting point the words of Jesus that we heard in our passage of Scripture today, perhaps his most famous statement on church and state. When some religious leaders come up to him, you read the story in Mark chapter 12, it's there in your bulletin. Some religious leaders come up to Jesus and they want to trip him up. They want to get him to say something that will get him into trouble with pretty much everyone. And back then, just as today, you can do that by asking for a political opinion. And then you're going to find somebody who disagrees vehemently with whatever it is that you say. And this one is a traditional one, and it's been going for a long time. This one is about taxes. And perhaps you remember these words. Is it lawful, or this question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? To the Roman emperor. Caesar is the Roman emperor. Is it lawful? This is not just the law of the land. This is the biblical law of Moses, the law in the Bible. So you could rephrase it like this. Is it biblical? Is it God's will to support a governor or a ruler who you think is illegitimate and godless and immoral? How about that, Jesus? And they put him on the line with that. Of course, Jesus knows it's a trick question. No matter what he says, he's likely to get into trouble with someone. If he says yes, that gets him in trouble with the religious people and the patriots. If he says no, gets into trouble with the other side, gets into trouble with the Roman invaders and their supporters. And if he says no comment, well, he's going to get into trouble with everybody because everybody's going to read no comment in whatever way they want to read no comment there. So it's going to go bad for him no matter what. So Jesus thinks quickly and provides an answer that plays one side off against the other. And he replies like this. Give to Caesar. Give to the emperor, this godless Roman emperor. Give to the political authorities the things that belong to them. And give to God what belongs to God. This, of course, is an answer that leaves us with more questions than answers. And that is, I think, exactly what Jesus intended to happen. 
Because we have to ask, well, what is God's? And what is Caesar's? What is the nation's? What belongs to who? Jesus actually gives no help whatsoever to those who are asking the question when it comes to the answer for this, and he gives no help to you or me. Though there is one thing that I think is clear from what Jesus says, and that is this, that Jesus believes that life is inevitably messy. Life is inevitably messy. We are always caught between two realms, between God and Caesar, between the divine and the human. We're caught in what I have often called the murky middle. There is a tension within which we live that will always need us, leave us in need of prayer and wisdom, will always leave us feeling mm, just a little bit uncomfortable, as if we haven't fully resolved or reached a perfect solution to this problem or that problem or the next problem. And this is not just an issue which relates to church and state, as if there's a murky middle only in the issues of church and state. It's true in all kinds of areas of life as well. I think back to the struggles that families and parents have had, in particular during COVID. Now, they have these struggles perhaps at all times, but in particular during COVID, caught between the realms of allegiance relating to home and work, family and profession. Some days you're more of a parent, some days you're more of an employee, and when you're working at home, all of these things intersect, so you're online and the kids come in, and you don't quite know who you are at that particular moment. You're caught between these two spheres of life, juggling all kinds of aspects of life, and crying out, what do I do now? I'm not feeling as if I'm a good parent. I'm not feeling as if I'm a good employee. Nothing can quite go right in this difficult, awkward situation. And as Jesus answers those who are trying to trip him up, his questioners, this, I think, is exactly where Jesus leaves us. We are not in heaven yet. We are down here on earth in the murky middle. And when it comes to church and state, that's where we are too, caught between the perfect realm and the call of God, the standards of God, which are sure and true, and the imperfect realm of the compromised world in which all of us are a part. None of us gets it right. We are sinners saved by grace, and this affects everything in our lives. So the idea that we could have the perfect solution is quite contrary to our understanding of human nature the human nature for which Jesus died. So we live in this fallen world with a call of God to stretch us beyond our normal human capacity, and we're always asking, how can I live in a way that is faithful to God and also as a faithful member of the nation I love? Where do I strive for perfection? And where does perfection turn into hypocrisy and cruelty get twisted by the sinfulness of life? Where do I settle for less in an imperfect world? Because if I stretch it too far, I will end up being cruel. What is God's? And what is Caesar's? So these are the two questions I want us to think about today, which Jesus poses to people back in his day. And I want to begin with God. What do we owe God? As we live our lives in this murky middle, what do we owe God? In some ways, this one is the simple one to answer, though, of course, 
It takes a lifetime to put it into practice. What we owe God is our ultimate allegiance. That is what we owe God. Above every other allegiance, above our nation, we owe our allegiance to God. Above our political party, we owe our allegiance to God. Above anybody else, we owe our allegiance to God, our commitment to God as our ultimate ruler, emperor, king, president, whatever you name it. This is the call of Holy Scripture. This is what we hear in the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. It's not just about idols and worship. It's about any authority above God. There must be none. God is to be the ultimate authority in our life. And this is the call of Jesus in the prayer that we pray week after week after week. It is thy kingdom that we pray for that is to come. Of course we pray for our nation, and we will today. But it is God's kingdom, the reflection of God on earth, that we are to pray for more than anything else through us. So the king and the kingdom, the realm of belonging and allegiance that must be top of the list, about which we must be most passionate. On this, actually, there is no question, though putting it into practice, as I said, no, that can get complicated. It must be to King Jesus. And the word Christ also means king. It must be to King Jesus and to the realm and the rule of God that one day in heaven we will see perfectly, but here we see dimly. This is not a call to force God's kingdom, even though it's the ultimate reality on others, by war or legislation. In fact, if you remember, Jesus was opposed to the Pharisees who tried to legislate personal morality on people around about them, and he accused them of becoming cruel and of being blind to their own hypocrisy. Have to be very careful here. This is not about what we impose on others. This is about what we impose on ourselves and that we must wrestle with every day of our lives. Indeed, if we don't wrestle with it every day, we will never put God first. This must be in our hearts and in our minds. Every day when we awake and perhaps when we go to bed, you are first. I got it wrong today. Help me to get it right. You are the one to whom I owe my ultimate allegiance. You alone are my king and I'm your servant. The Christian struggle, the personal struggle, is to get that right within our own souls, day after day, week after week, and year after year. So that's what we owe God, our ultimate allegiance. That's what we're to render unto God. But what about the other part? What about Caesar? What about the emperor? What about the secular nation? in which we find ourselves, what do we owe the civil authority in the society around about us? Well, when I read through the Scripture, read through the Bible as a whole, there are two overriding political images that come to my mind that I think we see in Scripture and that are important. One comes from a period in the life of God's people when they are in power, when they are exercising power, building up a people and building up a nation. And the other set of images comes from those periods in God's people's life when they are out of power, when they actually have no ultimate control of their political destiny. They are in slavery, they are in exile, or they are under occupation. And great swaths of the Scripture are about those periods of life, when the people are in Egypt in slavery, when they're in Babylon in exile, and when they are 
in Jesus' time and in the time of the early church under Roman occupation. So go back, for example, to the book of Exodus when the tribes of Israel are in charge of their own lives for the first time in 400 years. They've been slaves. Now they've been set free. And they're marching from slavery to freedom to the promised land. And one of the first things that God calls them to do when they have power, when they have power, is to create laws for their land, regulations and rules for their lands within which they will find their greatest liberty. Liberty in the scriptures is never the absence of rules or regulations. Liberty in scripture is in fact about God's rules and regulations for our lives, primarily evidenced in the Ten Commandments, which aren't so much commandments actually, but they are principles, fundamental principles about different areas of life, which we then go on to ask God, how does this apply in our particular circumstances in life? So they established the rule of law. They established the nation as a nation of laws and not people. Ten Commandments are fundamental and never abrogated. But alongside these laws, there are repeated admonitions for the nation not to become legalistic. Repeated admonitions to administer justice fairly to all and to protect the weak from injustice and from vengeance. Nobody gets to be proven guilty without the evidence of two witnesses. No circumstantial evidence. Some people say the Old Testament law is harsh, but here's one is critical. It is never implemented unless it is absolutely sure. There's no iffiness about the judgment. No two witnesses, no condemnation. Justice is really important. Everybody gets it. And those who are on top are summoned to pay great attention to those who are on the bottom, the underbelly of society. Dozens of references throughout the Bible point in this direction to the care for widows, powerless, orphans, powerless, immigrants, powerless, the poor, powerless. So just a few of these verses from Moses in Deuteronomy and from King David in the Psalms. What's the name of God to Moses in Deuteronomy? Well, listen. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. Check that off. Then, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, who loves the strangers. This is another term for immigrants. Providing them food and clothing. This is who God is in God's very nature. And David in Psalm 68 calls God father of orphans and protector of widows. And then, David in the Psalms, in Psalm 146, reminds God's people that the Lord watches over the immigrants. He upholds the orphan and the widow. But the way of the wicked he brings to, to ruin. And Moses spells this out in terms of a social safety net. Deuteronomy 24. When you reap your harvest in your field, that means you're a powerful person because you own land. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be left for the alien, the orphan, the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all your undertakings. If you grab just for yourself, make the rules and the laws just for yourself, you will lose. But if you fill those laws with grace, I will bless you, says God. And then David emphasizes that all of this is the specific responsibility of those who are in government. In Psalm 72, he writes, May the king, the person in charge in government, 
Judge your people with righteousness and the poor with justice. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the needy, and crush the oppressor. And when the people in government don't do this, when the king doesn't do this, the Bible tells us that God sends his prophets one after the other, Nathan to King David himself, or Isaiah, or Micah, or Amos, to let those in power know that if they do not uphold justice for the powerless, then God will make them become powerless one day and know what it's like to be on the underside. And will bring justice and judgment to them. So there is this strong word. I mean, it's repeated again and again. Don't tell me you read the Bible and cannot find it. If you read the Bible, you have to find it. It is there all over the place. A word for those who are in power. Not primarily about policy, but about principles. Not so much about application, though some of it is, but it's primarily about the undergirding principles, the way of looking at life that is to guide, that are to guide everything else we do. The policies may vary. The gospel does not belong to one party or another. Strategies, hmm, they're going to be messy and different. Christians will disagree. But the principles remain the same throughout the story as a whole. But of course, not everybody has power. And as I mentioned, a lot of stories in the Bible are about periods in the life of God's ancient people when they are, in fact, politically powerless, when they are out of power. They're in slavery. They're in exile. They're living under the oppression of the Roman authorities. And what then? What happens then? Well, there are three different things that happen. The first is uncommon, but it does happen, and that is revolution. And we cannot forget our country was born of revolution. People are in slavery. They've been there for 400 years. They cry out to God. God hears their cry and sends Moses to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. And there is the use of force in different ways that comes into play right there. Even though that's not their intention to harm others, that's what happens as they come out of slavery and they head on their way to the promised land. Once. In Scripture, you have revolution. And there is a time for a revolution, especially when it comes to slavery. But then there's another aspect of playing out our life in a political system where we don't have much power, and that is what we might call nonviolent civil disobedience. This is what the early church, the Christian church, lived under when they lived with the oppression of the Romans over them. They saw that the Romans weren't entirely evil. In fact, there were many things in Rome that were good. But there came a time when they could not serve the Romans and their justice, and they were willing to pay the price for that as they disobeyed the powers that be. And the book of Daniel is about that, is it not? The passage that I read just a few moments ago when an edict comes out which says you can't pray to anybody but to the king, Daniel says, well, I've got to pray to the king. There is only one king. He knows his ultimate allegiance. And he's willing to pay the consequences and to trust God even in those consequences. Or we might think of Esther going in to see the king when her people are going to be slaughtered because of an edict which has gone out from the king. 
And she risks her life in order to do this, has not been summoned into the presence of the king, but she says, I've got to go. I've got to tell him this is wrong. And so we find these stories in the pages of Scripture as well. Obviously, part of the way of acting of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., nonviolent civil disobedience. It's there in the Scripture. So these things are there, but most of the time, most of the time, the Scriptures paint a picture of living under the authority that we've been given, whatever it may be. There's a time for revolution. There's a time to challenge the system as a whole. But there's also a time for every single one of us to simply play our part to be a witness for Christ in the profession or the calling to which we have been called, to work effectively for God wherever we are, as Jesus would put it, as salt and light. Get in there. Do your bit. Well, I don't see that it's changing much, Lord. Just do it anyway because you don't know how much you will change as you play your part. This business about playing our part can be seen by some as weakness, or at times actually as treachery. How in the world can you serve the secular government in this kind of a way without calling for a revolution? In fact, the prophet Jeremiah, whom nobody could think of as weak, called the people to do precisely this when they'd been taken as captives by the nation of Babylon. In a series of verses, which is well, uh, well known to many people, he counsels the captives to settle down in the land to which they had been taken by a pagan ruler. And here's what he says. Seek the welfare of the city to which I send you. Build houses, have children, develop your life there. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I know the plans I have for you, he says. Plans for a future and for a hope. And there would be some who would say to him, that's just weak. How dare you say that? Don't you know how godless the king of Persia is? And you want the success of their cities? And Jeremiah says, well, yes. I want you to be salt and light wherever you are. And you cannot change the big picture. Do your work wherever you might be. And this is what Jesus calls his disciples to do. Living under Roman oppression, Jesus chose not to be a zealot. He had that option to overturn the Roman authorities with power. Chose not to do that. But he told his disciples, he said, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Get in there. Get mixed up in the messy, middle, muddle of life. And with God's help, play your part. Two of the earliest followers of Jesus, Peter and Paul, understood this very clearly. They had no illusions about the godliness of the Roman Empire. They could never forget that it was the Roman government who gave authority for Jesus to be crucified. The religious leaders were involved, but there would have been no crucifixion unless the Romans had given their permission to crucify Jesus. And in the end, both of them almost certainly were put to death by that godless Roman authority. But this is what they say about this godless government. First Peter 2, as servants of God live as free people. 
Yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Freedom always has its boundaries. And if we press the boundaries too much, we will destroy the liberty of others if we are not careful. Honor everyone. Everyone! There's very little honor for people who are not on our side these days all across the land. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor, this godless emperor. Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It is not our job to condemn our enemies, but to pray for them. To bring them, if at all possible, into the household of faith. And then Paul picks up on Jesus' own teaching when he says in Romans 13, Pay to all what is due to them, taxes to whom taxes are due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. You're in the middle, says Jesus. This much is clear, always caught between multiple allegiances. Give to God what is God's, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, caught between God and Caesar until we get to heaven where the kingdom of God alone will be manifest. But here on earth, hmm, there's a tussle. Now we see through a mirror dimly, says the Apostle Paul. Only then will we see face to face. Here in the middle, we need to pray. We need to use our minds to love the Lord our God and to serve as best we can. Not easy. We need to remember to seek what's right and fair and just, not just for ourselves, but for as many as possible, for those on the underside of society, not just those who are on our side in society. We need to remember that revolution exists once in the pages of Scripture. Resistance is called for if you're willing to pay the personal price. But most of the time, our resistance is to be by playing our part faithfully as salt and light wherever God calls us to be. Seek the welfare of the city to which I send you, for in its welfare you will find yours. May God give us wisdom to know how best to act. And may God hear the prayers of all of us for the nation we love at this time, perhaps more than ever. Let us pray. Holy God, every single one of us lifts up our heart before you and seeks for you to bless our nation. We have different understandings as to how that may be. But lower our understanding down to where it ought to be. And exalt your name, even through us, we pray. We bring our prayer through Jesus, your Son, our Lord, our only King. Amen.